So I think we're filming this after we edited and recorded the episode with obviously the, the devastating news out of Israel in the last couple of days. You were born in Israel. You've no doubt got some, some thoughts and comments on, on what's happening. Yeah, Adam. I mean, I think it was, it's important to just touch on this given how devastating it is and how severe it is. And I thought it might be interesting for people to kind of try and take the emotion out of it and to just to talk about what's actually happening there because it's it's pretty hard to understand. And this is what I think is the most interesting part of it for our listeners is just to understand that the group that um, perpetrated these terrible acts called Hamas, people think about them as being the Palestinian leadership or representative of the Palestinians, but really they are more like an arm of the Iranian military that is called a proxy, the way Wagner is for, for Russia that people know. And so mostly what they do is Iran's bidding and Iran's two kind of nemeses in the world are Israel and Saudi Arabia for complicated Muslim world reasons. And those two countries were about to, well, looked like they were heading down the road of peace and Iran would have been very disadvantaged by that peace. And so really what has happened is Iran has sent Hamas to start this war. I think the degree of the atrocities committed surprised everyone, including Hamas, that they were able to do that. You might say, well, you know, how does Hamas committing atrocities scupper a peace agreement between Israel and Saudi Arabia? And the answer is that, you know, Israel obviously is going to have to retaliate. I think revenge is the wrong word for this. I think retaliation is the right word. I think they're effectively going to try and eradicate Hamas as a force in Gaza after this. Um, And, you know, a statistic that I heard uh, spoken about by the U.S. uh, ambassador for anti-Semitism, I think she's called, is this was the largest number of Jewish deaths since the Holocaust in a single day. And so this is how Israelis are feeling now. And fundamentally, what I think Hamas is hoping for is that Israel is going to retaliate and try and wipe them out. And all of Hamas's military infrastructure is sitting mostly underneath civilian infrastructure. So underneath apartment buildings, their headquarters, their main headquarters is in a bunker underneath Shifa Hospital, the main hospital in Gaza. And so what they're hoping for is that when Israel retaliates, they kill thousands of Palestinian civilians. And that will certainly turn world opinion against Israel, but also it will mean that it's impossible for Saudi Arabia to proceed with peace negotiations and normalization negotiations with Israel. And so to me, like that is the fundamental thing to understand here, that this is not about the Palestinian self-determination or them not having a negotiating partner. I'm no fan of the right-wing Israeli government, as you know. This is about much deeper global geopolitics, and it is the work of Iran much more than the work of Palestinians and Palestinian uh, statehood aspirations. I think that's a great insight. I think note the speed that Israel had been achieving this normalisation. So obviously there was the UAE, Dubai, so you can now get an Emirates flight straight into Israel, which was unthinkable a couple of years ago. And Saudi was obviously next. It's, It's super interesting. I think your point makes a lot of sense. I think what one thing it also really does reflect on is what a disaster Netanyahu has been he was spent so long pushing through this judiciary change, essentially at the behest of, of the ultra right, and it fractured the country. And has really, a, a, in, the, in the eyes of many, allowed this massive intelligence failure. But it feels like Israel's eye was off the ball, and that responsibility feels like it lies on on the hats of, on the on the head of Netanyahu. Yes, it feels to me from speaking to my friends in Israel, you know, a, a number of whom have been called up for military service to go and fight these terrorists and their kids have been. I mean, it's a grief-stricken situation. It feels like nobody was protecting the southern border. You need to understand, Ga- the entry to Gaza 
is a one hour, 20 minute drive from the central Tel Aviv. So these are small distances we're talking. And obviously there's nothing good about what has happened. But one thing to me that was in some ways a, a, a relief in one tiny way is that when the UAE put out a comment about these atrocities, instead of maybe condemning Israel or being ambivalent in some way, which would have been the historical view of a lot of these Arab countries, they were strongly in support of Israel and against these Hamas actions. And my hope is that the Abraham Accords will survive this war, uh, but there's still a lot to play out. Hezbollah, another Iranian proxy, might attack from the north. They're a much stronger force. They control Lebanon. Um, And so I think you know, this is a complicated issue that can't just be reduced to the black and, and white, but I do think it has exposed Hamas as being not the leadership of the Palestinians, but a anti-Semitic genocidal Iranian force that just really wants to kill Jews in Israel. I think the, the, the tragedy of it is obviously we've seen almost a thousand Israelis massacred women, children taken from their homes and slaughtered. And we're about to see a number of Palestinians massacred who may not support any of this. So it's it's unnecessary death uh, to Israelis and, right. and to Palestinians as well. I mean, we should say, I'd say this very clearly, I mean, you know my views on this, I've been a 30-year supporter of a two-state solution and a peace process. Uh, I call myself centre-left on these issues. And, you know, the lo- a life of a human being, a civilian, is the same as... This has the same value as any any other civilian, no matter where they live or what they are. And I think there are going to be thousands of Palestinian civilians killed over the course of this because of the way Hamas operates. And really, this is going to be a tragedy for the whole region and all of these civilian deaths. You know, this is the evil genius of Hamas, basically. And that was an important insight. And let's start the show. Hi, everyone, and welcome to The Contrarians with Adam and Adir, the only pod that takes you behind the scenes and gives you the inside word on the world of tech and growth from the insiders. I'm Adam Schwab, co-founder of Luxury Escapes, journalist and angel investor. And I'm joined by my great mate, Adir Schiffman, executive chairman of Catapult Sports and serial investor. On today's show, we chat about collapsing share markets, Canva's recent results, the implosion at Jack Dorsey's block, and the never-ending Taylor Swift juggernaut. So, dear, welcome to the pod, episode number eight. We've had a our best ever episode last week. I think we're up twenty percent, or even more, even thirty percent week on week for listeners, which which is incredible. So, thank you to all our fantastic, the contrarian army, I like to call them. Thank you for for listening. Uh, we we appreciate we appreciate you lending us your time every every week. Well, hi, Adam. Um, so I'm going to call out someone specific about the contrarian army, as you've called it. We're going to give a good name for them. This is someone I don't know. I'm going to give a plug for someone I don't know, but I'm going to give a plug for Matt Osborne because I posted something on LinkedIn and I said our LinkedIn group, which is called... Not like you to post on LinkedIn. (laughs) It's called The Contrarians with Adam and Adir Podcast. That's the name of our LinkedIn page. It had 199 members and I posted... Whoever, can people please join because we want to get over 200. And I'm proud to say a week later, we're at like 350 or whatever it is. But there was someone who was our 200th member and that person was Matt Osborne. And Matt, who I don't know, and presumably you don't know Matt, but Matt Matt is... Great guy though. He's a great guy and, you know, he's got great taste in podcasts. That's very clear. He's at KPMG and he's the lead for government incentives. And so I would say... 
his reward for being the 200th person to subscribe is he gets the equivalent of, you know, a $200,000 shout out on our podcast. <laughs> if you need help with government incentives, go to Matt Osborne at KPMG and presumably he can help you because he I'm certainly has the title. We're literally to do doing it. this now. So thank you, you Matt. <laughs> what an incredible guy Matt is. And, and well on to your idea for starting that, that, face, that LinkedIn page. Uh, that's my one. I reckon that's my one contribution to the operations of this podcast. <laughs> it was important, though. <laughs> now, tell me what else. To, I've, I've, my week has been very unexciting. It's a low bar, so you need to get over that bar and tell me something. I, I was in Gold Coast for the week. I had a great time at SeaWorld, which I, I love. Uh, so, I think the best family destination in the country. So, good friend of Luxury Escapes. But if you, if you want a great place for the family, check out SeaWorld. But I just want to give a shout out because I criticise them a lot on the show, but. Uber, which has had its issues, you remember how at the airport, if you wanted to get an Uber, it took like 10 minutes. They, they, they chucked the Ubers out like past long, long-term parking. It, it, mm-hmm. it was just a terrible experience. It wasn't Uber's fault. It, was the, it just, they weren't ready for it. Now, I think Uber's done a deal with the airport. So they're front and center. You literally walk up, and I've done this three times in a row now. You walk up to the sort of Uber area. You put in where you want to go. It gives you a pin. You walk, there's literally Ubers sitting there. You jump in the car. It takes like three seconds. That is... Uber, congratulations to Melbourne Airport as well. So Melbourne Airport and, and Uber have combined to create, I think, the best transfer experience anywhere in the world. It is that quick. Uh, so shout out to, because we're obviously very critical of Uber sometimes. Mm. I obviously love Jody, who, who's very senior there, but we're critical of Uber at times and I'm critical of, of Uber Eats for the fees. But this is a, a great effort in customer service. They've done a really good job. Melbourne Airport, we could have a long conversation about because I've got issues with it. But um, there are some things that Sydney Airport should be fixing up which yep. is when you go through security, that's an absolute nightmare at Sydney yep. Airport. I feel like I'm going through security in 1995 and I'm <laughs> taking these things out of my laptops out and this and that. And, you know, you look at Melbourne and like lots of, like I think the Qantas terminal at Melbourne has still got some issues, but the new Terminal 4, which is where Virgin and Rex and whatever sends their customers, that feels like a high quality international terminal. terminal security. Yep. Yeah, I think that terminal is a really good terminal. So that should be, I think, one of the things we should be focused on in Australia is lifting all of our airports, taking the best of every airport and lifting all of our airports to that standard. And the problem with that is that they're all privatised, I think, now. And so, like, (laughs) there's no incentive for them to do anything except make as much money as possible. And, um, And I think that is part of the problem that we have with this like inconsistency across airports how did you find the gold coast airport I, I, my favorite airports those smallish ones i think i think yeah, gold coast is a really good airport uh it's actually one of my favorite i think adelaide's a great airport brisbane's a great airport probably melbourne cities they're so big they got international it's constant planes you get delayed on the tarmac you don't really get that as much in these i call, I call it mid-range airports uh, i think they're, they're my favorite airports like i was in atlanta airport which is the biggest in the world earlier in the year that was I'm sure you've been there a few times. That that was horrific. I've never been there. Uh, don't I've never been to Atlanta. I want to go to Atlanta. Yeah. The city is good, but the airport's no good. It's the biggest, biggest in the world. My favourite thing about the Gold Coast airport is that when you get out... I love the Gold Coast. Love the Gold Coast. And when you get off the... You know, the, you land at the, the airport and they open the door and then you walk out downstairs, mind you, yeah. and um, you get the smell of the Gold Coast. <laughs> it's you, know, warm, you know what I'm talking about? Warm. I'm right, aren't I? Yeah. yeah that, it's just like your holiday begins at the exit door of the plane. That well, I, is what I love about that. What I don't like about the Gold Coast is that road from Coolangatta to Surface Paradise or Broad Beach, wherever you're going. Sure, they can make a better road than that. It's always traffic on there. It takes 50 minutes. It should take 20. That's frustrating. They're doing work on it now. They're trying to put a light rail on it. They, they've been doing work for 10 years. It's like Melbourne's tunnel. They never stop. 
it, it's well, that's like how roads infinite. work. You have to do work on them. Yeah. This is a this is a light rail that is going to extend first to Burley, and then all of the way to the airport, notionally in time for the Brisbane Olympics. It's What's that? Twenty thirty two or something. Yeah. So you know, even an Australian. But the funny thing is, they just didn't work on this part of the road for 10 years yeah. for the light rail and then it's like some panic stations oh my god this 2032 and like only in a country like Australia with the infrastructure would you have nine years to build a light rail called panic stations but um, they're in panic stations and so I don't know if you noticed but there's constant road closures on that road right now but hopefully it means that um, come 2032 it'll be much easier to get around the Gold Coast and people won't be driving cars. And I think that, you know, it's a nice piece of infrastructure they're building. Good news. Let's go on to our first story. For our first story, markets around the world continue to stagger downwards, with the ASX 200 closing below 7,000 last week. If you go back to October 2017, the index closed at 6,700. And while there have been some dividends on top of that, in 16 years, the index is basically back to where it started. These moves come as US bond yields hit a 16-year high to rise above 5%. Part of this rise has been caused by the US Fed shrinking its balance sheet by allowing $60 billion of bonds and $35 billion of mortgage-backed securities to mature each month. Adia, for many people who have been investing since 2009, these haven't seen a market like this what do you make are you are you bearish at the moment are you hopeful the way i think about markets is it's just a one piece of the jigsaw puzzle of the economy and you know i keep quoting you because i thought you said this very well you said you know inflation is just all about too much money sloshing around in the economy which is by the way the most simultaneously the most simplistic and sophisticated way I'd ever heard that described, which I think is spot on. And what I think is if you said to me, can you tell me what drives the entire capitalist economy in one word? What I would say is, can you give me three words? And then what I would say is cost of money. That's what I would say. The cost of money, that's what drives the economy. And in a capitalist society, it's capital, so that's what drives the economy. And the way I think about this is in the simplest possible terms. There is money now that is much more expensive than it used to be. And that means it's harder to get hold of and it's worth more and I need to do better things with it when I have it. The way I think about it is this. Let's say I've got $100 and I need to find somewhere to put it. And let's say I'm completely risk averse. I want the lowest risk thing I can do with it. And so you might say put it in a bank, but obviously a bank is not the lowest risk thing, like banks do fail. Maybe the lowest risk thing is give it, lend it to the American government. That's the lowest risk thing you can do because they've never failed to pay interest, let alone pay back the money. And so, and you know all this, like that's called a, tre- a treasury bill or a T-bill, they call it, because I, I think treasury is too long of a word for Americans, so they call it T-bill. Every bit of risk you take when you make an investment kind of gets priced against whatever this T-bill will give you for taking as little risk as it is possible to take. Obviously, there's still a bit of risk. And so what's happened is people have said, well, I can go and get 5%, let's call it, for a T-bill at the moment. And so if I'm going to go and invest in the stock market, that's riskier than a T-bill. It's actually quite a lot riskier than a T-bill. And so I need to get a much better return than 5% from the market. And, and so at the moment, the biggest problem is they're not getting a much better return than 5%. Like the yield difference, I think it's called the equity yield risk or difference or whatever it's called, which is basically the difference between what stocks pay and what the T-bill pays. It's, I don't think it's a T-bill, but whatever. So let's simplify it. Like that difference is basically zero at the moment. 
And so my bigger concern is, I think it's possible that the market has got further to fall because the level of risk that you're taking in a stock market, you're not being rewarded for relative to the lack of risk you're taking in a T-bill. And so that's my real concern about markets, that the full the full cost of money has not yet been factored into the stock market. I think you're right. It's interesting the Australian stock market has... has been a lot lower relatively than the US. The US market's still significantly higher than it was pre or post GFC. It, it increased a lot. Really on the back of that, the big seven, the Microsofts, the Apples, the, the Googles, etc. Mm-hmm. Whereas Australia obviously doesn't have the big seven tech businesses. It's got a bunch of banks and mining stocks really that, that power it. And the other interesting thing to note is the difference between Australian interest rates and US interest rates. So US interest rates are caught around circa 5%. Inflation in the US is actually back down to 3%. So for the first time in, I think about 15 years, actually, you're actually getting a real return on your money. So you're getting, by real return, I mean the rate of interest, less the rate of inflation, which is the real return. There's no point getting 5% interest if your inflation rate's 10%. You're actually losing 5% in, in that investment. If you're getting 5% and inflation is 3%, that's a real return of 2%. In Australia, it's still the opposite. So you've got, I think, what, 4% interest rates and you've got inflation at, seven percent so you put your money in the bank in australia you're losing two or three percent it's a negative rate so people talk about how australian interest rates are high now or they're staying high they need to drop interest rates interest rates are still negative we are still in an expansionary interest rate setting so as you know i've been critical of of glenn stevens and, and phil lowe and now i've been critical of michelle bullock phil lowe to his a bit of credit at least started to normalize interest rates he then he got bad press and, and wussed out, as they always do. I thought Michelle Bullock might have a bit more bravery. She's obviously another lifer RBA person. She's blown it again in her first in her first meeting. Be nice to see some Australian central bankers actually follow Jerome Powell and the US's lead. The US has actually been relatively brave in in tackling inflation. Australia's been gutless. We're, we're going to have continually high inflation because our RBA is utterly gutless, and it's made even worse now because our our relative interest rate setting is lower than everywhere else. Our dollar's being smashed, which means we'll import more inflation. So we're in for a torrid time. Australians are in for a torrid time because of the absolute gutlessness of the RBA. As always, you're harsher on these people than I am. But I agree with you that, you know, when you say there's negative interest rates, what you're saying is there's, the interest rates are still significantly lower than inflation. And so effectively, the interest rates are uh, giving you a negative rate relative to, to inflation. Um, exactly. I, I think the thing that is bizarre about what is going on right now is that we have this situation. And so the reason, before I say that, the reason I say that the cost of money is so important as well is that also impacts whether people have got any money to spend in the economy because if the money is so expensive and all it's all going on their repayments for their mortgage or something else, then they have no money to spend in the economy. And so what's weird about this is that money is expensive. I know it's not as expensive in Australia as it is in the US, but it's still a lot more expensive than it was two years ago. I mean, it was basically free two years ago, you could say. And... What's happened is money has become expensive and yet the number of new jobs being created continues to rise and inflation in the US has come down. And that is a weird like triad because usually what happens is inflation is high and then you jack up interest rates and you make money expensive and nobody has got any and they start firing people and the unemployment rate rises and inflation comes down as a result and then you try to avoid a recession which people call a soft landing which i'm not sure it's actually ever been achieved in the history of capitalist economics but you know maybe it will be this time because somehow in the u.s 
inflation has come down, interest rates have gone up, and like in the reverse order, but job creation was, did you see the numbers? It was yeah. crazy like last week. It was double what people were expecting. And so I don't, I just don't think anyone can really provide a comprehensive explanation of how the economy is working right now. Definitely part of it has got to do with the fact that so much debt was pumped into the economy during COVID by governments effectively printing money. But I think one of the biggest concerns today is that all of these governments around the world have got so much debt and they can't pay it back because they're not going to put taxes up and massively increase revenue and pay it back. And so the consequences of it are that governments are going to have to refinance debt at much higher rates, which is going to be a nightmare for either taxpayers or it's going to result in cuts to services. And we've just lost idea, I think, due to some MBN issues, and we'll uh, we'll pick it right back up where we left off. So I actually agree with you. I think there's a really interesting dichotomy. The US seems to be heading in one direction, and Australia, I think, partly due to the RBA, is, is heading in a different direction. So I'm I'm bearish about where Australia is going to go. I'm, I'm marginally less bearish about the US, knowing they still maintain these massive deficits. There's political turmoil, McCarthy, all that kind of stuff. So, I'm, But I'm still more be- bullish about the US than Australia's prospects at the moment. I, I just, my overarching feeling is I feel like it's impossible to predict what's going on. This is the dream of anybody who, is, who makes their money out of risk because it is so completely unpredictable. You know, when people say, what do you think is going to happen with these companies or the stock market or whatever it might be? As I said to you, like I think governments having to refinance their debt, that is a, a tidal wave that has not yet been factored in. But I think that that's going to have a material impact. Couldn't agree more, dear. And we'll move on to our second story on Canva after a quick word from our sponsor. So, idea, what do you think of the challenge of hiring developers and product managers these days? Oh, I think um, that's got to be one of the toughest parts of growing a business, especially with the uh, demand for talent at the moment. I couldn't agree more. And that's why at Luxury Escapes, we boost our onshore team with developers from Petona, a fully Australian-owned and managed platform that was built to help businesses scale up with less capital, ultimately getting profitable faster. With Petona, they'll help you scale or build your team with incredible talent in places like Sri Lanka, Philippines, or India via a permanent remote staff or contractors. So should I assume that based on um, your enthusiasm, you've been working with Petona and you like them? I actually used to be really skeptical of hiring any developers offshore, but the beauty of Petona is it's owned and operated by Australians and led by Simon Lee, who's built and scaled multiple tech businesses. So you can really trust them to find great talent. We actually started with just a couple of resources and scaled to more than 15 team members. So Petona are perfect for businesses looking to scale. If you're pre-product, they're probably not for you. But they work with smaller businesses as well as big enterprise clients, including Treasury Wine Estates, Accolade Wines, Luxury Escapes, of course, Little Birdie, Impos, and Old Sale. If you're struggling to find and scale a tech team, then go to the Petona website at petona.com.au and click on Get Started. And welcome back. For our second story, Australian tech darling Canva last week announced their financial results and reported annual recurring revenue of US $1.7 billion for the last quarter, an increase of 21% on what was it reported six months ago. Canva was most recently valued at US $25 billion, which while down from its mega US $40 billion val in 2021, still makes it the most valuable private company in Australia 
and after Atlassian, the most valuable ever Australian tech business. As the AFR noted, Canva's revenue is almost double the size of WiseTech, which is itself is valued at $20 billion on the ASX. So Adir, do you think Canva is meeting the expectations of its huge valuation? Are you impressed by what Mel and Cliff and Cam have been doing? Are you a Canva bull or a bear or what do you... I mean, I think you'd have to say there was a lot of schadenfreude about Canva when they had to do these down rounds and whatever it is, keeping in mind that, devel- that the valuations that get set for Canva generally happen on tiny capital raisings relative to their worth. So, you know, it's like... what. Well, what if it was a public company, you'd say it was thin volume of trade, right? So I'd keep that in mind. But what I think is this, so I don't know Cameron as it happens, but I met a Mellon Cliff, like I would say literally when they were starting Canva, they had something called Fusion Books. It was this thing that for yearbooks for schools, I thought they were very smart. They were much smarter than me because I didn't think what they were building would necessarily amount to anything. So I didn't invest in it. I don't think I was never offered to invest in it. And I don't even think I had much money, but um but I've always found them to be um, straight shooters personally, like quite forthcoming with providing assistance if I've needed it or and just just nice, to be honest. You know, I thought, I get it. Like they, they have been a little bit thin-skinned about talk about their valuation and journalists love that, right? They all pile onto yeah. something like that. Fundamentally, this is how I feel about Canva. I think it's very close to turning into a religion if it hasn't already. And there are some other religions like um, like Tesla. That's I mean, Apple is the number one religion, yeah. right? But Tesla, it, I think, it, it, I don't know, I'm not sure if it's still a religion. It definitely was. And so I know yeah. some people that were shorting Tesla at one stage. And I thought, uh, like, probably these are smart people. Probably shorting them is a smart thing to do. But I wouldn't short it because my number one rule is never bet against a religion. Mm-hmm. Because acolytes of a religion they will buy into that religion against all reason. And so I'm not sure if Bitcoin is that or not, by the way. Like that, it, it might be another religion. But what I think is that Mel and Cliff have built a brand. That brand is better known than Atlassian. It's much better known than WiseTech. It is a globally known and loved brand. And I think it's on the verge of being a religion. My biggest issue with it is companies don't make money anymore. <laughs> like one of the things about Microsoft, because you know, Canva's not a Google. Like Google has this huge advantage in that it asks people for money at the moment that those people are trying to get customers and make money. And nothing can compete. Like half their revenue comes from search. So nothing can compete with that. But Canva is kind of like a Microsoft or what they sell like subscription software. And so I, it would be good to just start seeing some of these businesses throw off lots of free cash which they might be doing by now by the way i don't know i think canva does throw off some cash I, I, i'm a massive canva i've never i'm like you i've never met i don't move in the circles that you move in unfortunately so i've never met uh Cliff i met them before they were famous i mean that's like even better circles. i'm a huge fan of Canva. I, I love the product we use it obviously my, my concern and i actually wrote an article probably two years ago before the big race like i think this is a hundred billion plus business and i think and I still think Canva is a much better business than Atlassian. I know Scott and Mike obviously invested in Canva and have been, I think, great mentors to, to Mel, and, Mel and Cliff. But the concern I have with, with this set of numbers is, I don't know if you noticed, but the, the growth rate was only 21%. I know that, that's, that's not year on year. That's, that's sort of half on half. But I expected Canva Was it half on a, half or quarter on quarter? That was I think it was, was no, it was six months. I think it was a quarterly AR, but it was six months. Well, you don't like 21% growth on a billion plus dollars of revenue half on half. I mean, God, you were a tough guy to satisfy. 
I mean, that seems pretty good to me. It's good, but this is a business that people are valuing at 20 times revenue that is making a little bit of money, but it's not. So if you're if you're making a bunch of money and you're pro- highly profitable and you're growing 30%, 40% a year, that, that's incredible. But if you're a scale up, not hugely profitable yet, I think you probably want, and, and you're, you're batting off this valuation, I think I would have wanted a higher growth rate. Uh, this is not, it's not X growth, but it's not spreading like wildfire. X growth. So by X growth, you mean like growth is its history, not its present and future. Twenty, 21%, you're saying it's not X growth. It's a long way from not X growth. It's growth. 21% on, like, if maybe if the company, there's a company with $5 million of recurring revenue and they do 21% growth for the year then I would say, oh, there's a bit of a danger that this is turning into an ex-growth business a bit early. But here we're talking about north of a billion dollars of ARR. It's a half, and they're doing 21%. This feels pretty good to me. Who's What's better? Tell me better growth rates than this of these kind of businesses. I think Alassian's growing, and as you know, I'm no great Alassian fan, but I think Alassian's growing it in the 30s. Wisetech's growing faster, and obviously Wisetech's B2B, and there's some acquisition in there. But, but Wisetech buys everything. Faster. Yeah, it does, but it's that's an old... That's a, much yeah, older business. I love Canberra. I love I love the, the guys that run it. I just don't think... I, I expected higher growth. I just... Tell me the answer to this. Because, you know, the unit economics of these businesses, when they get pitched to VCs... And by the way, I pitched this to with, back in the early days of Catapult. So, like, I'm not um, throwing stones at other people because, like, this was me, right? Like, the way these businesses are pitched is we're going to reach this level of revenue and then we're going to cover our fixed costs... And then we are just going to drive incremental revenue with really no fixed cost growth or not much. And the incremental cost to serve is basically going to be next to nothing. And so it's just going to rain cash and we're going to go to 30 or 40% like free cash margins. And it's taken Catapult till this year, like, you know, way north of $100 million of Australian dollars of revenue, like let's say heading to 150. It's taken us that long to do it. It's just always perplexing to me how a business can go and do one to two billion US dollars of revenue. I know it's ARR, but let's call it revenue, and not be making tons of cash. Like, it's all people, right? That's the, There's nothing to buy. All you can buy is people. Well, that's, that's my point. What's Catapult's revenue multiple? Uh, it's very low. It would be like three. Okay, so Catapult's for three times revenue. and I can't really say it's undervalued, but I will say, because, you know, that would be improper, but I would say, relative to peers, that number is much smaller and it's still growing really strongly and is transitioning to free cash generation. If Catapult is, is at three times and Canva's at 15 to 20 times based on the, on the recent... This is the cutback valuation. One of, either Catapult is grossly undervalued and or Canva's grossly overvalued. They can't both, both be... Well, they can, that, both of those things can be true. Yep. Fundamentally, one thing that hopefully will change as a result of expensive money is that companies, software companies will be more inclined to generate free cash earlier and find a way to keep growing and generating free cash, preferably paying some dividends to shareholders. And I think that ultimately Canva, Canva's argument is, from what I've heard, that if they wanted to generate lots of free cash, they could at this point in time, but they're just all in on growing. And so, so that, that's, that's my point exactly. And I love, don't get me wrong, I love Canva. These guys know, are two of the best founders in the, the Australia's ever produced, if not the best founders Australia's ever produced. But, and the, the part is, I, I want them more than 20%. Yeah, fair enough. I mean, I, the big question is going to be, 
when and how they IPO, because ultimately that market is a transparent market. At the moment, we just get bits and pieces of information and try to put the puzzle together, but there's lots of puzzle pieces missing. Whereas in Atlassian, you get the whole story. So I think they're both great businesses. I think they said they got 100 million paying people or something, customers or something like that, like individuals. If you said to me, they're going to end up with 300 million paying customers, I would believe it. Like you can feel the momentum of Canva. It's overwhelming. Everybody uses it. So uh, this is my question. You're, if you're Microsoft and put aside antitrust, if you're Microsoft, why are you, and you know, Microsoft has got cash in the bank mm. of something like 120 billion US dollars. So they got, they're not short of a dollar. And, and they're paying dividends, right? And like they're adding to that cash pile at, I don't know, a few billion dollars a month or whatever it is. And so why has Microsoft not gone to Canva or at least to some of the shareholders of Canva and said, we'll just give you a 50 or $100 billion valuation and just take them out or take out a large piece of them? To me, th- this is a company that is of a high enough quality for Microsoft to seriously want to take them out or someone as large as a Microsoft I'm pretty sure antitrust is the is the reason. Why. You think that's the reason? I think big tech can't buy. I think no one in big tech can buy anything at the moment. Even remember, Microsoft tried to buy Blizzard, Activision, and they were. They'll buy Blizzard though. They'll get Blizzard. But it's taken them a year. They have to do all this stuff. Like whether if they had the time again, would they do it again? I, I don't know. I don't think a, a croc. You know, a crocodile is happy to work a bit for a big meal. And I think that's Microsoft, right? Like, they have to do the work a year of work. They get Activision Blizzard. It's going to be yet another transformational step for their games business. They've, they're actually an, an unbelievable company, Microsoft, yeah, who, absolutely. by the way, went nowhere for a decade in terms of their share price. Mm. And, um, and so I think I'm surprised that um, Canva is still independent and one of the reasons might be because the founders just have no interest in selling. But I can tell you this, a minority shareholder in Canva that came in at like a $1 billion valuation, which by the way, at the time would have seemed crazy. Like if you say to them, we'll give you 50X on your money, here's the cash with interest rates as they are today, there'll be, there would be sellers at that price. I think just one final point on that. I think why we both love Canva so much is people love the product. You talked about the religion is people love the product and I compare that to Atlassian. People don't love Jira. They use Jira because they have to because it's legacy. And eventually they'll switch out, which is why I'm much more bearish on Atlassian than I am bullish compared to my bullishness on Canva. Canva is a great product. It's improving. People love it. That, that's, that's the secret sauce. The people will leave Jira, by the way. I'm not, look, I agree with you on the relativities of how much people love the product. But the people will leave Jira argument has been going on for a very long time. I've heard that for years, that argument. And it, it makes perfect sense, except it doesn't happen. You know how you said, by the way, I like Canva. Yeah. I just want to tell you, I'm never unsure about whether when you don't like a business. <laughs> <laughs> I'll have to keep you guessing. And we'll be back after a really short break with our next story on the share price collapse at Jack Dorsey's block. Lots of people tell me that Luxuryscapes is one of, if not the best, onshore development teams in Australia. But we don't just use great local talent. We actually supercharge our team using Petona, the incredible platform that allows us to scale with incredible talent in Sri Lanka, the Philippines, and India via permanent remote staff or even contractors. You can save time and accelerate the recruitment process by accessing Petona's pool of pre-screened, highly skilled professionals and use Petona's all-in-one platform that enables businesses to minimize overheads 
by consolidating invoices, timesheets, and even leave management. So to take your business to the next level, go to the Patona website at Patona, P-A-T-O-N-A.com.au and click on Get Started. For our third story, we're talking about the long-term implosion of former market darling Block, previously called Square. The Jack Dorsey founded fintech has seen its shares slumped by almost 85% since February 2021. Incredibly, incredibly, Block's total market value is only US $26 billion. That's less than the US $29 billion it originally agreed to pay for the once high-flying Australian fintech Afterpay. Because it was a script merger, Block ended up paying only $17 billion for Afterpay because its share price dropped before the deal was completed. Block has been slipping in recent months since announcing its disappointing earnings result in August. And while gross payment volumes were up 12%, its net loss rose from $123 million US to $208 million US. Block is highly leveraged to economic activity and faces stiff competition from the likes of Apple, while the buy now, pay later sector appears completely out of favour with investors marking down after their competitors, Affirm and Zip, by more than 95% from their COVID peaks. So, dear, what are your views on Block Square, whatever it's called these days? Are you a believer, or is this share price crunch justified? Block is a very interesting business. Firstly, we can say this. Let's not call Afterpay a sale of a business. This was not a sale of the business. It was a merger of two businesses, both huge, with Afterpay being the smaller one. Because nobody took any cash off the table as part of that transaction, as far as I know. It was 100% script for script. I think they, right? they could sell... I don't think there was escrow. And I think Ant and Nick as well sold a big chunk pretty quickly. I don't know. If, I've never asked them. and They've told me and they probably wouldn't. But I think they did sell very quickly. Okay. But what that all you're saying is that... Um, they got these other shares in return for their shares and they could sell them straight away and maybe they did sell a number of them straight away. But ultimately, that was just one company absorbing another company and some of the shareholders of that other company were selling as soon as they got the shares, which is smart. Like That was a smart thing to do. Like And possibly the only way that the Afterpay founders could have, if they had, because we don't know if they did, but if they had wanted to, that was almost the only way that they could have sold a large chunk of stock one is because it's not easy to sell when um, like you're the, the per- person running the business. Like Australian investors hate that kind of thing. And secondly, because it was just so much stock that they had in Afterpay as a dollar value of Afterpay, whereas it was a much smaller dollar value of Block. So that's what I think about the transaction, which wasn't your question, but I just felt like you should have asked me that question first. And so... Um, <laughs> and so... Uh, it's, I think these are very hard businesses to value. I want to talk about the sector rather than the business. And I'm going to talk about the, the buy now, pay later sector. And Block is a different business, right? Like it bought buy now, pay later. I think buy now, pay later is an old idea with a modern execution that feels a, feels a real customer need. Because when baby boomers were kids, they did lay by which was the same thing, except you couldn't get your stuff until you finished paying for it. And I think it was f- effectively financed by the store. The store put the item on hold until you finished paying for it, and then they gave you the item. And so the modern iteration of that is, how about, I say this every podcast, finance has become increasingly sophisticated. And some finance people came along and said, oh, you've got an item and you don't give it to them until they finish paying. 
they'd much rather have that item now and like we can get involved in there and lend the money and we can take a clip because you know finance evolves and so afterpay came and did that as did all of these other buy now pay laters and i think there's a genuine demand for that service particularly in a younger demographic you agree with that thesis or not well if you're talking if you say is there a demand for free credit which is essentially what buy now pay later is of course there's the man because if I, if I can get free credit i'm going to take free especially if i'm a 25 year old who doesn't like credit cards if i can get money for free which was possible two years ago as we talked about before because because money was free and afterpay and firm and zip were all building their business on the at the time at a time of unusual and unprecedented time of free money now it's not money isn't free Okay, so I'm going to say take that as a yes. People, w- there is a demand for the service. Yes, there, there is for the, all of the reasons you said, but yes, there is a demand for that, right? So there's not a problem with customers wanting it. The real question is, can you make any money out of it? And my view on that, the economics on that are pretty simple. I, I know we're talking about buy now, pay later. We can talk about Block's other business in a second. The economics are simple. When there's a transaction, the store pays some fee to the buy now, pay later operator. And that started off at 6% and it worked its way down. And even at 3%, let's say, let's halve it, let's say 3%, if all of the money is paid back to the buy now, pay later operator within 30 days, and we're not and assuming no bad debts, then we can do a pretty simple maths and just say they can do it 12 times a year and they're getting paid 36% interest on every dollar over the course of 12 months. And whatever the cost of capital is, it's not going to be anywhere near 36%. And whatever the cost of operations is, it's not going to be near 36%. But marketing might be the Achilles heel of these businesses. Two things. And the other Achilles heel is the bad debts Achilles heel, which which has been, I think, the main Achilles heel in this part of the economic cycle that these businesses seem to have been running into. People basically just don't pay the back the money because they don't have that much money and there's not really any consequences for not paying back the money. Yeah, you nailed it. There's, there's two, I think, in my view, there's two massive issues with buying Apple. And this is why, in my view, they're all going to zero. They're pretty much at zero. They've still got 5%, but there's a little bit of a, of, a, of a stub left. But they're basically all worth nothing, according to the market. And for two reasons. One... It's a commoditized product. So as you said, commissions got dragged down from 6%, which was a profitable level to 2 to 3 And sometimes it was as low as like 1%. So the JB Hi-Fi's and, and the best buyers of this world, I think were paying 1% to afterpay in a firm because they just dragged it down. So there was a massive level of com- competition because it's a commoditized product. That was one humongous problem. I think actually that was probably the biggest problem. I actually think the bad debts is a slightly lesser problem, but still a big problem. You're basically a pawnbroker, unsecured credit to people who can't get credit elsewhere. So you're dealing with uh, probably the highest, one of the highest credit risks out there. And of course they do no checks, all that kind of stuff. So what they do is they kick you off the system once you don't pay. So that, that's, that's good. But it's, it's a t- it's a t- from the d- supply and the demand side, I think it's a terrible business that people just got fooled into thinking it was this great business as, as happens with manias. And it was a mania. And Afterpay, I think Afterpay was worth... $50 billion at one point during COVID. It was actually worth more than Telstra. I mean, that's a good time to buy boring stocks, right? So I, I, so the where we disagree on this is I think that there is a good buy now, pay later business with these uh, caveats. One is it seems to me that it should be a winner-takes-most market because they're all basically offering the same thing and there is no room for eight or nine brands competing on a commoditized offering. That's my view. And you see that in credit cards. Like there's Visa and there's MasterCard and that's kind of it. And then there's Amex and maybe, I don't know if Diner still exists. And 
And what you have is banks issuing one of those because it doesn't need to be 10 different options for you to go through. And so one is I think there has to be a clear out. The second thing is you're judging these businesses at what I think might end up being the worst part of the economic cycle for them. Maybe there's a bit worse over the hill to still come, but we're getting pretty close to the worst part of the economic cycle. Expensive money, lots of defaults, customers adjusting to the fact that they don't have that much money. At least they've got jobs. Maybe a harder part of the economic cycle would be rising unemployment will make it worse for them. And then the third bit would be that they can hold on to their customers so they don't have to pour all of this money out for acquisition, which was the catastrophe for these buy now, pay laters. But in in defense of them... The market that was valuing Afterpay at 50 bill and Zip at whatever, and you know, you know I really like Larry at Zip, and I think he will be uh, be able to get their business to cash positive. But the, what the market was telling them was, don't worry, burn cash, take our money, go and grow your customer base at almost any cost. And so I don't know if any of them can string those three requirements together, but I think one of them will be able to, and I think that this is a real service that needs to be that, that customers want. But it might be a bank that ends up providing this kind of service as an alternative because they've already assessed the customer properly. Uh, Banks for one. I think the bigger one, and this is, I think, when they really... The real death knell of these businesses was when Apple and and PayPal started doing it. So PayPal already have more customers than anyone else. Just literally have put a button there and suddenly they've got Afterpay's business. And obviously Apple... Uh, ubiquitous now mm-hmm. uh, and obviously android as well so you're competing against those guys that is that is next level like to beat against apple like the 3.5 trillion dollar monster that really wants to get into financial services that's one place i don't want to be competing against so I, i'm i really like nick ant and that's Barry. a good I'm, point i'm glad that they they all got a good chunk of cash out they'll live re- happily ever after uh, i think the other guy at zip didn't get cash out so i think peter grace i think he's he's got a few problems but but larry got 30 million out which was great for him and obviously nick and ann probably got about billion billion out each so these guys smartest guys in the room they sold i think i posted on linkedin this is probably over, well over a year ago and it was a, a photo i remember when uh the Americans in the 2000 Olympics, they were going to smash Australians like guitars. And then yeah. after the Australian, it was Ian Thorpe and Michael Clem. And after they won, they were pretending to play air guitar. And I, yeah. I remember I got that clip. This is, and so Australians have taken, Afterpay has taken tens of billions of dollars from those idiots at block. So Jack Dorsey, as you know, I think is probably the worst CEO in the world. Uh, it was a disaster at Twitter and he's been a disaster at block. People love him, but he's, he's a disaster. There's a lot of people on your list of worst CEOs in the world. I think Dorsey like is fo- the worst. It's like a 400-place tie in first place. <laughs> no, there aren't that many. Well, who are the other ones? I, I, can't I don't want to say them because I need to try and not get sued for defamation. But there's a few of them There's a few of them that you don't love. Let's put it that way. Well, there aren't that many. But I think, uh, needless to say, Nick and Ant were on the other side. They were incredibly yeah. good uh, wealth, wealth generators for their shareholders. Sold at the perfect time uh, and... and did a great service Australian re- consolidated revenue because they they took a bunch of money out of US <laughs> and put it in Australia. So well done to those guys. That's a good that's a good example of what we were talking about on a previous podcast when we were talking about the healthy mummy, which where where we were talking about how the timing of the sale is arguably more important than the quality of the business that you build. Basically, I want to say one other thing about Block since we've talked about all this afterpay stuff and buy now pay later. It's not really a buy now, pay later business block. Yeah. And it's not even really because it it's got Square, right? It used to be called Square, which is a payments business. A merchant services business, yeah. So do you want me to tell you what it really is? Oh, you probably know this. It's a Bitcoin business. That's its business. Yeah. 50% of its revenue comes from Bitcoin-related trading. And so I don't know how much you know about Bitcoin. Like I've learned a bit more. I tell you, I'm going to 
name drop extraordinaire of who recently Here gave we go. me a Bitcoin we go. lesson. Yeah. I was sitting having a casual coffee with um, Matthew Della Vadova. Of course. What, who won an NBA ring with LeBron <laughs> for, at Cleveland. By the way, he's a smart and very sophisticated person and really a lovely person to speak mm. to and know and is investing in startups now and knows an awful lot about bitcoin and has been the most persuasive person i've met around bitcoin and has some interesting investments around that you know he's taught me a bit about bitcoin we'll try and get delhi onto this podcast i think he'll he'll, he'll it's a challenge for you can you get the nba champ onto the podcast i think it's so. your job for the we'll week we'll see We'll, we'll see. You know, people say Bitcoin is too slow. That was one of the historical arguments. Mm. And so there's this lightning kind of network yep. as part yep. of Bitcoin that speeds it up. And Block is heavily involved in that. And so I, I don't know if investors exactly understand what they own when they own Block. Like, they don't own Buy Now, Pay Later. They don't really own a merchant services business, although they do own both of those. And Square yep. feels quite ubiqu- ubiquitous now. 50% of their revenue is Bitcoin-related transactions. And Jeff, definitely Jack Dorsey is a true believer in the religion of Bitcoin. That's, you know, that's I said, don't, don't, don't short sell religions. You saw Bitcoin bounce back. It might be real, it might not. I don't know. I actually can't work it out, but definitely it is a religion. And I can tell you that multiple people have said to me, you know, what's Bitcoin worth now? 25,000 US dollars or whatever it is, right? And it went down to 20 or a bit below. Uh, people say to me, I've had multiple people say to me, if it went to 100,000, I wouldn't sell. I'm a fundamental believer in Bitcoin. That's a religion. That's a religion. And so... What I like about Bitcoin is there is genuine utility there because if you're sort of... I'm an old school believer in sort of gold as well for that reason. And Bitcoin is in many ways a modern gold. People criticize it for not being that. But in many ways it is. The thing mm-hmm. I don't like about Bitcoin is just so unsta- the price is so unstable. If Bitcoin didn't jump up and down like a yo-yo, I'd be much more inclined to to be a Bitcoin fan. The fact that it's become, it's basically this tool of speculation with all these shady Sam Bankman fried characters around it. That's what I don't like about it. The actual notion of it, I think makes a heap of sense. It's, it's all, it's everybody around it that, that makes but it. But I wonder, yeah, so agree. And so I wonder though, how many block shareholders realize that essentially what they're really doing is making a large bit on, a bet on Bitcoin when they own Block because it's so much of their revenue. So I think that's the most unusual part about Block. It's got all of these businesses that are real businesses and maybe um, you believe in them and maybe you don't believe in them, but then it's got this huge chunk of facilitation of the Bitcoin ecosystem that is driving half of its revenue and it is heavily leveraged to that, which I think that will be the most interesting bit of this to watch play out. That's a good point. And we'll take a quick break and be back with our next story on the Taylor Swift effect. So, dear, you're a prolific investor. What stage do you like to invest in businesses? And where have you been your biggest successes? So let's not say prolific because that will invite a million emails as a consequence of this podcast. (laughs) But let me tell you where my best investments have been. They've been in businesses that, let's say, have a few million dollars of revenue and a really good quality product, good product market fit. And I can help them really scale those businesses and get hands on and build, you know, like very profitable companies out of it. And where do you find the biggest challenge 
is for scale-up businesses? I mean, there's a lot of challenges, like there's finance challenges and there's, uh, like one of the big challenges is personnel, basically. Like as you grow, you have to hire more people. I would say like for software businesses, the software businesses I get involved in, you start running into dev challenges at some point in time. I'm lucky, like I've got guys, there's a guy, Steve Ford, who comes with me and and partners with me in a lot of the startups we build as a co-founder. But generally speaking, that is one of the challenges without a doubt. And you didn't tend to use onshore or offshore resources in your scale-ups and startups? It's mostly onshore. Like I've used offshore in the past. And to be honest, like my experiences with them have been pretty mixed. And, you know, that is why I've ended up mostly using onshore. But it is a nightmare. Like there's a lot of talent, but there's so much demand for talent. And it's quite expensive in Australia, in my experience. What, what do you do? I mean, you're, you've got more developers than I've got in some of these businesses. Like what do you do for that? Yeah, we've got a team of about 140 now. And we used to be almost exclusively onshore. So we had a small team in the Ukraine. Then we had pretty much everybody uh, onshore in, in Sydney, really. And what we found, especially during COVID, was it was just really hard to scale the team quickly. So we, whilst our team in Sydney are brilliant and one of the best teams going around, to try and grow from 50 to 140 that we did, it was almost impossible. So what, what one thing we did that was one of our secret weapons is we work at a business called Batona, which is run by... A good friend of mine called Simon Lee, who's one of the great Australian entrepreneurs, he founded a business called Assembly Payments, who's a multiple successful entrepreneur. And the beauty of working with him and his team at Patona is Simon's based in Australia and he runs the business from here. He's got a huge team in India and a growing team in India. So he's got access to an incredible amount of resource. If you want a Salesforce developer or a front end or a back end, whatever you need, he can source it within almost days. He can grow your team from 10 people to 30 people in a matter of weeks, which in Australia would take probably six to 12 months. That sounds much better than the experiences I've had with offshoring in the past. And so, you know, presumably we're having this conversation because you want me to take a look at Patona and check them out. But I think I think that sounds pretty interesting to me. I think that's pretty good. If any listeners of, of the Contrarians want to use Patona, I suggest you go to the Patona website, which is patona.com.au and click on Get Started and you can speak to Simon and the team and they'll help you grow and scale your development team and other resources. Whatever you need, they can supply. And welcome back to the show. Our fourth story is the continued impact of Taylor Swift on the economy. And we talked about this a few weeks ago, but the Taylor juggernaut has continued. And last week, it was revealed that Swift was dating Kansas City Chief tight end Travis Kelsey. Since Swift was photographed at one of Kelsey's games, Kelsey became one of the top five selling NFL players, experiencing a nearly 400% spike in merchandise sales. Bearing in mind, Kelsey had already been playing for a decade and was regarded as one of the best ever tight ends, winning two Super Bowls and breaking a receiving record in 2020. Last week, Gannett, the owner of USA Today, announced that it hired a Taylor Swift and Beyonce reporter. Such is the interest in Swift. Adieu, have we reached peak Tay-Tay this week? My peak Tay-Tay happened a long time ago and... It is slightly above zero is where my peak is. I, I cannot, I like, I just got to be honest. I don't really care about these people. I like Taylor Swift. When she was doing like real country crossover, like I, th- I really liked her music. And definitely there's some stuff about her music I really like, but I don't really care about her. I mostly feel sorry for her, to be honest with you. I feel like, um, can you imagine traveling the world and anything that you do and everywhere you go, is the biggest news story of that location or that particular thing. And so there's a whole NFL. It's the biggest sporting league in the world by dollars. And she comes along and she hijacks the entire NFL 
because she's dating one of the players. And so I think that would be really an absolutely horrible way to have to live life. I think this is probably over the long term um, going to be interesting for like Kelsey's post uh sports career like you know he's got some good differentiation now i'm not suggesting that's why he's dating her but he's got some good differentiation do you see um what mark cuban sent around about this relationship no i didn't this is your mate so he sent this tweet and he said um i'm going to do a funny mark cuban story after this since you said he's my mate we literally this he actually is your mate he posted this tweet and he, he it was encouraging taylor swift to break up with kelsey saying i've got heaps of really single, good-looking, eligible bachelors at the Dallas Mavericks. And I think he did it because, you know, like Kelsey's jersey became the number one seller across the whole NFL when this happened. So I thought that was a very funny tweet. And fundamentally, to be honest, like this is the problem with being part of like the Taylor Swift, uh, you know, steam train. Everything is caught up in it. And I just think, I mean, how does she live a normal life? Like this does not seem like a great life to be leading. So... You know, I, I don't know. I, I don't. I don't even know why we're talking about this. Like, it's it's. She drives the economy, which is great. And I just read an article. People made heaps of money selling outfits. She drives the small business e-commerce economy that makes outfits for fans to wear to her concerts. And like, they can barely keep up with demand. Like, she drives a big chunk of the economy. But like, as a life, like, I don't. I, I would not want to swap places with her as a life at all. God, I think she's remarkable. She's a we're a business show and she's an incredible business person. So congratulations. That I agree with. Do you, want to, uh, do you want to hear my um, Mark Cuban story? Yeah, absolutely. What's your it's, a good, it's, a, it's a good story. A few years ago, I can't remember when it was, a few years ago, face, I was caught up face to face with Mark Cuban and it was down in somewhere in California. I won't be too specific about it. And he was down there for something and I went down there to meet him. It was very hard for me to get there. So I ended up staying overnight there and the only hotel there was like a thousand US dollars a night, which just like broke my heart a bit. And and I saw him the next day and we caught up. I can't remember if we caught up for lunch or just before lunch. Americans are very big into their iced tea. I'm not sure if you've caught on to that, but they really like iced tea. He likes iced tea. I don't mind iced tea. <laughs> so we're sitting there and we're drinking iced tea and we're talking. And, you know, the way it works there is that they just keep refilling your iced tea. I don't know if he was paying for all these iced teas or if it was a bottomless whatever, but whatever was going on, the minute I got close to the bottom, it was refilled. And after an hour, so I'm looking at him and I'm like, I'm like, I've drunk a lot of iced tea. I've got to go to the bathroom. But I didn't want to move from the conversation because I just didn't want to risk it ending. And what I'm thinking is this guy's significantly older than me. How in the heck is he not having to go to the bathroom? He's drinking two to one iced teas compared to me. And I'm dying. And we finally, I think we went for like two and a half or three hours. And then he leaves. And like, I, I can barely walk to the bathroom. Incredible stuff. I remember sitting there thinking, how is this actually possible? This cannot be humanly possible. He's, he's drinking two to one and he's older than me. And, you know, he's got this level of steely determination that like, I just, it was a tough day for me that day. We had a, a, a fitness week at work last week and we had our a planking competition and i was going for a oh, three yeah. i like planks uh, so i had a bit of an elbow issue so i wasn't coming in in peak fitness but my um, hang on did you say you were going for a three peak is that what i just talked over you yeah oh we, I, we haven't done it for a few years but one one 2019 or 2018 whatever it was uh, maybe okay. it was 2000 yeah i think it was those years i take back that i'm good at planks because i don't want to compete with that 
So I would take it back. I got to the final two, but I, I did 13 and someone did 13 and a half minutes. So unfortunately, I, uh, I, I couldn't quite hold on long enough. But it was a That is a long time for planking. I just asked some quite specific questions. So is that um, feet together or, or you're allowed to separate your feet? Separate. No, we were pretty free with the rules. You just had to have four limbs touching the ground and not right but you have to be flat like like a board like you know what i mean like we uh, weren't super we were flattish we weren't super strict on flatness that's a long time i mean i think it passed the planking international planking competition rules but we were were relatively i'm not sure what's interesting about that story is how little it has to do with mark cuban and iced tea but how great a story it is nevertheless in demonstrating over the top planking ability, which I can't, I can't believe thirteen. Like I would, if you would have said to me, "Do you think thirteen minutes is a good enough time to win a planking contest?" I would have said definitely. You're home with thirteen minutes. I think it's go. inferior to Mark Cuban's two and a half hours with eighteen liters of iced tea, though. If you're talking about human <laughs> endurance feats. By the way, this particular place we were sitting, there were like I'm not very good at recognizing celebrities. In fact, to be honest with you, I'm actually quite terrible at recognizing people. So yeah. it would take me five or six meetings with someone to be <laughs> able to recognize them out of context. And in context, it would take one or two meetings minimum. Like I'm very poor with facial 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 recognition. But I was looking around and there were like all these faces that I recognized that were sitting in this same place. And I was sure that they were like famous people, but I just couldn't pick who they were because number one, I don't really know famous people. And two is I can't even recognize anyone anyway. Everyone looks the same to me. And so I thought I'm like kind of, I can't work out if I'm the ultimately good fan or the ultimately bad fan for people to have because I will never go up and annoy them because I don't know who they are. And even if I did, I couldn't recognize them. But I wonder if that would give them an ego complex because like... (laughs) I just don't know who they are. So, but I think there were a lot of well-known people. There. I used to get, go to the Emirates Marquee, not as a celebrity. I used to have, have a media pass. I go in with a media pass. I've never my, been there. This is it's not around anymore, obviously. I think it was about 2010. I was there. My wife's from from England, so she doesn't um, like. She genuinely didn't know any big Australian stars or or, or even uh-huh. obviously semi stars. And there's a bunch of obviously well-known people in there. Lots of footballers. It was me and my wife, and then I was speaking to this, this lady who was I think very senior one of the not-for-profits. I was speaking to the lady who was lovely, and then. My wife started speaking to this guy, just speaking to this guy. And I'm, I know he's Daryl Braithwaite, but my wife from England a year ago didn't have no idea who he was speaking to. And Daryl sort of speaking to her. And Daryl, he wasn't dressed particularly well. I think he had, he was just sort of dressed for that environment, not overly well. My wife had no idea who this guy was. Uh, thinking, I think she's thinking, how did this guy get in? Anyway, she's speaking to him and, he, and she goes, oh, and, and what do you do? He goes, oh, and he's pretty offended. And he goes, oh, I'm, I'm a singer. And she goes, oh, what kind of music do you sing? And, and Daryl's just, at this point, he's steaming. He, he doesn't know who he, and he, he almost stormed off in, in disgust that really? this English girl didn't know who the hell he was. So I said to my wife, do you know who that was? And she goes, no. I said, that's, that's Daryl Braithwaite. And she goes, who's Daryl Braithwaite? I said, these, you know, horses? Like the, she had no idea. I, I think now I still don't think she knows who he was. Well, let me tell you the other extreme to that story. Because you know how you said he got offended? Yeah. So I will tell you something that was a ridiculous thing that I did, okay? So... When I first started going to the US, I knew who some of the celebrity athletes and people around sports were, but not as many as now, obviously. And also remember that I can't recognize anyone. (laughs) And so I got on this plane. I was going up to this big MIT sports tech conference in Boston that I've spoken at for years. And so I got on this plane from New York to go up there and I'm sitting across the aisle from, I might've been next to him. I was sitting next to this guy. It's an old, older guy, not old, older guy. And um, I chatted with him like a bit casually, you know, just during the flight. And then the flight lands, it's a very short flight to Boston. By the way, the closest airport to a city center I've ever come across. God, I wish the whole world was like Logan Airport. You could literally just walk there from the city if you wanted to. And 
And as the everyone starts getting off the plane, everyone walks over to him and like says things like, oh, hey, coach, well done, coach. <laughs> shaking his hand. Everyone's calling him coach and everyone's like so starstruck to see him. I, don't, I didn't recognize who he was. I get off the, I get off the plane. I'm walking next to him to get the bags because you know, I was talking to him a bit. And um, I say to him, listen, I know I'm, I'm, I'm a bit ignorant, but I noticed that everyone's coming up to you saying, well done, coach, well done, coach. I don't really, I don't know who you are. Like, like <laughs> what are you? Who are you? And he says to me, oh, I was an NBA coach. That's what I used to do. I was a basketball coach. And I'm like, okay. And then um, I knew his name. Uh, like, I, like I found out his name and I obviously knew who he was once he, I found out his name and I was completely shocked and horrified that I'd asked him that question. <laughs> do, you know, do you know anything about NBA, like who the greatest really? basketball coach was, of it's, recent times was? Was there's the Lakers guy from winning time. Yeah, well, yeah, what's his name? Isn't it? I thought it was Phil Riley. I got his, I got his, Phil Jackson, Phil Jackson. you mean? Yeah, Chicago Bulls. Yeah, Chicago It was Jordan's coach. Yeah, that's yeah. who it was, oh. Phil Jackson. That's who I was sitting next to, Phil Jackson. <laughs> so I was sitting next to Phil Jackson. I asked the guy who he is and like what he does. That is, that beats Daryl Braithwaite, by the way. And he was completely relaxed about it. Zero yeah. percent ego. Really nice guy to chat with. I mean, I didn't notice he's probably weighed down by 15 rings on his fingers, but like I didn't notice them. And so I think, you know, these celebrities, let's call them, they basically fall into two buckets. And the two buckets are, how do I feel about people not knowing who I am? And I think maybe Daryl Braithwaite, let's say generously, he may not be at the peak of his fame. Maybe he is more keen for people to know him. I think Phil Jackson is so famous mm. that he's completely fine with people not knowing who he is or his disposition is just so easygoing that that is not a part of like what he needs to be him. I think Phil Jackson, I remember in the last dance, Phil Jackson came across very well. Uh, I thought I thought he was, I was super impressed. The way he was interviewed for that show, The Last Dance, what was that on Netflix? It was uh, the great. Yep. I think the greatest documentary ever, ever made. That was a great documentary. The way that he spoke about life there. I mean, I didn't have such an in-depth conversation with him next to him on the plane, but just his general niceness and kindness in disposition was pretty consistent with my experience with him. So let's go on to our, everybody's favourite story of the week. Go to watch. <laughs> got new, a new soundtrack for Goy to Watch Now idea, which oh, I'm not sure you're, I think you think we're going to get sued by John Williams uh, or, or George Lucas. Let's hope we don't. If, if, if you don't hear the song next week, you assume we've been sued. I literally uh, think that's the least of your problems with this segment, by the way, but continue. <laughs> well, I, I, the biggest problem I have for this segment now is obviously Richard, our, our famous bet that listeners are aware of, Richard Goiter has, well, I've got six months for Richard Goiter to leave his post as Qantas chair, probably about five months left now because it's been, I think, four weeks. And what has really hurt me this week is is the great Joe Aston announced his resignation. So my biggest ally in this fight to get a free lunch off you is Joe. And Joe has announced his well, I'm not sure he's retiring, but he's he's tragically leaving the re, the great Australia's. Well, I always say Australia's one of the best ever journalists is mm -hmm. leaving his post. I agree with that. I'm, I reckon I got about 30 messages within an hour. So imagine how many Joe got if I got 30. Mm. So I'm, I'm incredibly sad for two reasons there. I mean, presumably he's not going to just sit on a beach somewhere. And so um, he'll continue his tirades and his investigative journalism wherever he goes, presumably. We can only hope. Uh, I don't know what he's doing. So hopefully, Joe, if you're listening, come back. Um, tragically for me, my, my ace in the hole was Joe's continued pressure. But we don't know that anymore. So uh, I think... If, if you're running the book at Sportsbet, I think idea has suddenly leapt to favoritism uh, in the last few days. I can't believe I have to wait another five months to get this lunch <laughs> off you. And then the question is, how long are you going to procrastinate actually delivering <laughs> your side of the bargain? 
Well, if I if I lose, I'll pay up pretty quickly. This is a long shot for me as well. I said at the beginning, I'm only 25% confident he's going to survive, but I think, um, I remember I said to you, if he gets through the first month, I think he'll be okay. By the way, we are quite critical of him. Well, one of us is especially critical, but um, I'll give you a chance to say something positive about him, okay? And you can take it or you can take a hard pass or you can slam me on the head, okay? This is what I'm going to say though. AFL, take away the very long departure process of Gill. Take that part of away. The AFL under Goida and led by Gill is a much better organisation on the whole than it was previously. And I'm not saying it was bad previously. I'm saying that has been an organisation that has been on a journey of continuous improvement. Yes, there are problems like the Hawthorne report, and but as an organisation, he has been a good CEO and Goida has been a good chairman of that organisation. I'll generally agree. I'm a fan of Gil and I think the AFL doesn't do everything right, but I think I think it's been pretty good. Andrew Demetrio, who's before Gill, I think it was a, a disaster. But I think Gill and, and, and Richard Goiter at AFL has been good. And I think if I'm giving Richard Goiter his credit, I don't know anybody else can say he's a lovely guy. So I think as, as in terms of, and I've seen him speak, uh, and he, he genuinely does seem like a really nice guy. I, my issue with him at Qantas is he just was a, a, a terrible chairman at Qantas. Uh, it doesn't make him a love, not, not a great guy and doesn't mean he didn't do a good job at the AFL, which I think you're largely correct there. So I think I can have some nuanced views at times. Uh, hopefully I don't lose a bet as a result of it. But very rare polarising CEO like Alan Joyce leaves and the chairman who supported him for so long doesn't. It, it, this will almost be the first time I'd ever see this happen. Usually When's you see the AGM? Both AGM is Do you know when the con- In the next week or two, I think. Is it? So I think that is going to be a window into who is going to be paying for lunch because if those investors really are supportive of Goiter remaining, which I think they are because, as I said to you, like when he said it at the Senate committee, if they weren't supportive, they would have come out and leaked it to the media. So I think they probably are and I think that if they support him at that AGM – then it is going to be very hard to dislodge him because he's not up for re-election. Lots of people like him as a person. He's very well connected and he'll have shareholders supporting him. I think that we should just do an early payout. I don't bet, you know that. I don't know if you know that. But I generally don't. I don't I'm not interested in gambling, but we should just call it and do an early payout if the AGM goes well and just go out for lunch because if he gets through that and he's got shareholders support, it's over. That's over. Oh, you I agree? Know. I, I'm, I'm still... I'm less confident than I was because I've lost Joe, my wingman. But but I think, well, I think he's, he's your a, wingman. I'm sure he'll be happy to hear that. Yeah, I don't think Joe. <laughs> Joe I don't think Joe's confident on that. But I'm, I'm calling my wingman. <laughs> uh, he's goose to my maverick. But uh, Qantas share price is now lower than it was in 1999. That's 24 years ago. I was at second year university. Yeah, there's been some dividends in that time, but not huge dividends. You, you would have made more, significantly more, putting your money in the bank than investing in Qantas shares. So the whole notion that Alan Joyce was this great friend of shareholder, we talked about this before, Alan Joyce was atrocious for customers. He was uh, not great for Australian community because he was so good at what he does because he was able to extract so much money from from taxpayers by, by, by politicians. But ultimately, he didn't great deliver a return for shareholders either. So really nobody won after this, this whole thing. So this is 24 years of, of no shareholder growth no but he wasn't growth. the CEO for those 24 years. So the question Jeff is, Dixon was beforehand, yeah. what, does it, what does the return look like from when he came on? I would say not when he came on board because he was there for a while. I'd say 
look at the two years, look at the price two years after he came on board, because a lot of that will still be the inertia of the previous CEO, which, by the way, is something that nobody talks about. But as CEO of an organization, most of the consequences of their tenure happen after they've left, because the average tenure is three or four years. Nothing, you can't turn these big ships in three or four years. So, like, what, I don't, I don't know what the... He re- came in during GFC, so he can't, and, and the share price then dropped because of GFC. So you can't really, it's hard to get a gauge from that. But if you look at it, it was seven bucks a share a couple of years before, or just under seven bucks a share before he, when he was running Jetstar. So, so ultimately, Qantas, more my point was, Qantas hasn't been a great shareholder story, despite the great meme that Alan Joyce has been this incredible value creator. He hasn't been. And that's probably the reason where I think Richard Goyder probably has struggled. So you've got ACCC issues which are playing out. You've got, it's lost, it's, it was an absolutely loved company, now it's hated, rightly or wrongly. And you've got shareholders having any benefits. So nobody's won here. What I think Goethe does have on his side, we talked about this last week, there's just no one on that board who can who can replace him. So they've got to get an external replacement. I'm not sure who that could be. Like a, a Catherine Livingston type? Would You need someone of that caliber? Like an incredible, I don't know whether she'd do it or, or not. She obviously did an unbelievable job at CBA. But you need a, a really good chairperson who's got great respect, who's done it before, an idea Schiffman type maybe. Like there's, there's a few out there, but but there aren't many. I think you can fill that role. Let me ask you this one question, last question, about the chairman's lounge. I saw a post mm. and the question was this. Do you think that Qantas should be required to disclose who are the members of the chairman's lounge? I'll, I'll slightly rephrase your question. I was speaking to people a couple of days ago, actually a couple of business people, and someone said, oh, you need to have a Qantas chairman. You never have a chairman's lounge because you've got these senior ministers and they can't be with the other people because they get approached too much and people ask with the people stuff. they work for do you mean yeah, and who pay their for. salaries I'm not saying I agree those with this, people yeah those people uh security all, all that kind of stuff and my response was maybe that's fair what you know what Qantas should do make a room that has nothing in it but chairs and maybe some phones and internet and let them sit in that room and then and, they, and you have to be, and this can be called the politicians club or whatever you want to call it the public have a a bare bones chairman's club that you don't get upgrades you don't get anything all you get is a room with security and you can go in that room and you can be be safe that's what Qantas and, and, and Virgin as well should do you know what I found outrageous and, and credit to, to Gina Cascott for doing this the head of the ACCC is a member of the chairman's club so the, their own regulator is a member it's a and that's just I think it shows ASIC, ASIC, all of them all, all the regulators the, are the, 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 all of Minister Trent like it's it's yeah. incredible that, but that, in fairness I don't I don't think the penny dropped before Joe did his pieces that exposed what a power play and what a kind of soft inducement it is. And my my by the way, my answer to the question that you tried to modify is <laughs> I don't I think it depends on whether you think that access to the chairman's lounge is an inducement. If it's an inducement then the company arguably shouldn't even be doing it, but definitely should be reporting it. But if it's just a benefit that's maybe we don't believe is directly correlated to outcomes, then I think it's the responsibility of the members to disclose that they are a member of that rather than Qantas disclosing. I would suggest as a consequence of all of this happening, there are probably going to be a lot more people deciding to decline. And I would say, you know, there are some politicians who are not members of the chairman's lounge because they decline it. They tend to be far left politicians, right? But um, oh, no, no, Pocock, uh, who's ca- I think he's senator for Canberra, he's he's centrist. I think he's a he's an excellent politician. Uh, I think there's a few that are. I think there's probably more Greens. I think who's the young guy, Max Chandler, the the young kid from Brisbane, the 25 year old senator. He 
I think no, that's not a center. He's a he's a house of reps. He he declined it. Uh, I think it's I, I think it's good on them for declining it. It should, I think the problem was nobody ever criticised it pre-Joe because either you, you had it and you didn't want to lose it or you didn't have it and you wanted to get it. So it kind of had this, this great hold. Yeah, and, and Alan Joyce was famous for, if you ever did anything to, to annoy him, he'd just wipe you. Dan Andrews like, because we'll just wipe you and you'd be out and you'd be out for life. Like it's, so he had this great, he used it so so powerful. He wielded yeah. like, a, like a sword and it was such an effect. I don't think it should be allowed. They make, give him a room. No up. And I think the more insidious problem than chairman, Chairman's Club actually isn't particularly valuable. The more insidious problem is the free upgrades that people get. And the but what and about the politicians that say I can't sit next to regular people because you know they might talk to me <laughs> and I can't do that on a plane. That's unpleasant. What if I end up in the middle? What if I end up in the middle? And two people talk to. That's a politician's nightmare. So I think it's complicated. I think the chairman's language will change somewhat, but I don't think it's going to go away. And I think this will blow over and there will be some people that are directly involved in regulating Qantas might start declining the the invitations. But I, I think fast forward two years... I don't reckon we'll be in a very different place to where we are now with the lounge. Thanks, Eddie. That was a great episode, as always. Uh, thanks to all our dedicated listeners. Uh, thanks to our sponsor, Patona. And we will see everyone next week. And we'll wrap up the episode there. Thank you for listening to The Contrarians with Adam and Adir. If you want to submit a question for the show, please send a voice recording to Adam J. Schwab at Instagram. Today's show was produced by Keelan Brown. Make sure you subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts so you never miss an episode. And don't forget to give us a rating and tell your friends.